you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the early years of the 19th century, early in the evening one day in May, a young man wandered into the city of Nuremberg in the Kingdom of Bavaria. In those chaotic years following the Napoleonic Wars, wanderers weren't uncommon. But this young man looked like he was no older than 15 or 16. He told a strange story of how he had been kept in a dungeon for years, ignorant of who he was or who was keeping him there. And one day, he was pulled from his prison and sent to the city. For the next several years, controversy raged as to who this young man was. And in 1833, he would die. And his death, like his life, was shrouded in mystery. Was he a noble plucked from death and hidden away? Was he a foundling exiled from his home? Or was he simply a trickster? This is episode 82, The Mystery of Caspar Hauser. Arthur Matchen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In 1828, Germany as we know it now didn't yet exist. The first real stirrings of unification weren't to begin till 1848, and even as political moves created a German empire dominated by Prussia, it remained essentially an alliance of states with a shared heritage. It wasn't until around World War I that the smaller independent kingdoms ceased to exist, and the single country we now know came into being. In the early 19th century, The map was a jumble of tiny principalities and kingdoms. The south of Germany was dominated by the Kingdom of Bavaria, ruled by King Ludwig I, grandfather of the so-called Mad King who built the castle of Neuschwanstein, the Kingdom of Württemberg, the Grand Duke of Baden, and the County of Hohenzollern, which was Prussian territory. It was in the Kingdom of Bavaria that today's story takes place. More specifically, it began at the Unschlitt plots in the city of Nuremberg. Sometime between 4 and 5 p.m. on May 26, 1828, a shoemaker named Georg Weichmann was near his house at number 10, speaking with another man named Jacob Beck. Both Weichmann and Beck were approached by a teenage boy, probably about 15 or 16, dressed in traveler's clothes. The boy inquired as to the way to Neutorstrasse, and produced a letter addressed to the captain of the 4th Chevalier who had an office there. Many accounts refer to these cavalry soldiers as Schmalischer. Weichmann offered to show him the way. As they walked, the two conversed a bit. 
The boys seemed under the impression that the Neutor, or New Gate, was newly built. It had actually been built in 1377, so it was hardly new. When questioned as to his origins, he said he had come from Regensburg. An alternate name only used, so far as I've been able to determine anyway, in the old Celtic and Roman name for the city, and the name of a battle from the Napoleonic Wars. In light of this, and his letter addressed to the military, his use of that name is interesting and perhaps telling. At the gatehouse, the boy spoke to the guard on duty, and Vikeman returned to his house. Meanwhile, the guard escorted the boy to the captain's house. But as the captain was not at home at the time, the servant allowed him to wait in the courtyard. When the servant questioned the boy, who gave the name Caspar Hauser, as to his place of origin, he replied, I must not say, despite the fact that he had just told Georg Weichmann. Hauser seemed to have a fascination with horses, and spent most of the time looking at them. After a while, he laid down on a pile of straw and went to sleep. The captain soon returned and read the letter addressed to him. There were two letters in the envelope, the first reading, I send you a lad who wishes to serve as king truly. This lad was brought to me on October 7, 1812. I am a poor day laborer with ten children of my own. I have enough to do to get on at all. His mother asked me to bring up the boy. I asked her no questions, nor have I given notice to the county police that I have taken the boy. I thought I ought to take him as my son. I have brought him up as a good Christian, and since 1812 I have never let him go a step away from the house. So no one knows where he has been brought up, and he himself does not know the name of my house, nor of the place. You may ask him, but he can't tell you. I have taught him to read and write. He can write as well as myself. When we ask him what he would like to be, he says a soldier, like his father. If he had parents, which he has not, he probably would have been a scholar. Only show him a thing, and he can do it. I have only taken him as far as Neumarkt. From there he went on by himself. I have told him that when he is a soldier, I may come and see him, otherwise he is off my hands. Honored sir, you may question him, but he don't know where I live. I brought him away in the middle of the night. He can't find his way back. It was noted in the sources I looked at that the handwriting of this letter resembled Casper's own. Neumarkt is a town approximately halfway between Regensburg and Nuremberg. The second letter, in apparently feminine handwriting, read, The boy is baptized. His name is Casper. His other name you must give him. I ask you to bring him up. His father was a Schmalischer. When he is seventeen, send him to Nuremberg to the 6th Schmalischer Regiment. That is where his father was. He was born on April 30th, 1812. I am a poor girl. I can't keep the boy. His father is dead. The captain began to question the boy, and apparently was dissatisfied with the answers, the tone of the letters, or both. He thought he was likely a runaway, and called the police. Shortly thereafter, he was sent to be held in the prison in the Vesner term in the, at the fortress of Nuremberg. Hauser had in his pockets only some religious items, such as a rosary and a prayer book, as well as a well-used key. The story of what was often described as a wild man, having been found, soon spread across the city, and people poured into the Vesner term to gawk a Caspar Hauser. Enough did so that, 
According to Major Hickel, one of the police officials, by June 18th, quote, it resembled a miracle-working shrine. Eventually, Hauser began to tell the story of his past, that he had been kept most of his life in a tiny dungeon cell, a cell with boarded-up windows and only a straw pallet to sleep on. He was fed only bread and water. He said that sometimes the water tasted funny, and it made him tired. He would have a clean shirt on when he awoke. One day, he said, an arm reached over his shoulder, putting a pencil in his hand and guiding him to learn to write his own name. This successfully done, the arm disappeared. After that, a man periodically came into the cell, either to yell at him or beat him for being too noisy, or to teach him other sentences, that he wished to become a soldier like his father, and that a horse would be given to him in, quote, the big village. Another time, the man came to the cell and took the boy outside to let him sleep on the ground. In the morning, there were attempts to teach him to stand and to walk. He and the man went walking for, quote, a day and a night. Then the envelope he carried was placed into his hand, and the man told him that when he had become a soldier, he would return for him. Then the man left. Hauser claimed to have never seen the man's face. From that point, he said, he apparently wandered into Nuremberg. Georg Weichmann, who had acted as guide to Hauser when he had first arrived, came to visit the boy in the Vesner term. But Hauser didn't recognize Weichmann, despite the fact he had just seen him the day before, and he should have recognized him, since by his own account this was only the second human being he had encountered, and presumably the first whose face he had actually seen. In July, Kasper Hauser was quote-unquote adopted by the city of Nuremberg, with the entire city essentially taking responsibility for the boy and for his education. He was first sent to live with Georg Friedrich Dalmer, a professor and philosopher. Dalmer soon forbade visitors as the steady stream of people coming to the house to gawk at the curiosity was interfering with Hauser's education. Spurred on by the romantic and possibly fanciful tale he told of imprisonment, so reminiscent of the man in the Iron Mask, many people began to try to connect him to one noble family or another. One soon became more prominent than the others, but more on that later. During Dalmer's time as Hauser's caretaker, a number of other tales began circulating, following some experiments he carried out, of the mystery man's supposed otherness. Dalmer was a subscriber to the theories of homeopathy proposed by Samuel Hahnemann, and through testing of homeopathic, as well as other more esoteric theories, he claimed to have identified several odd capabilities of the boy. For one, he claimed that his senses, particularly his sense of smell, was heightened. It was claimed, for instance, that Hauser was able to smell some sort of miasma when he was blocked from a cemetery, or that he could tell one individual apart from another by smell alone, and without ever actually seeing the person. His body was also said to be magnetized in some way, that iron held him fast and that he repelled silver or brass. It was also maintained that he had an ability to identify metals, akin to the so-called dermo-optical perception, that is, that a sheet of paper or cloth could be placed over a piece of metal, and that only by touching the covering, Hauser could determine what kind of metal lay beneath. It was while under Dahmer's care that the first attack on Hauser came. Around noontime, 
On October 17, 1829, he was summoned for dinner, but never appeared. When sought, he was found in the cellar with a wound to his head. He later said, quote, He had been oppressed by forebodings for several previous days, and returned to the Dalmer's house from the market. It was here, he said, that as a Duchess of Cleveland writes in her true story of Caspar Hauser, he was suddenly confronted by a man with a black handkerchief drawn across his face, who aimed a blow at him with a heavy woodman's knife, crying, After all, you will have to die before you leave Nuremberg. The words gave him a shock, for he recognized the voice of the man who had brought him to town. The story of the attack swiftly spread, and police soon found several witnesses who claimed to have seen a man of similar description to Hauser's supposed assailant. But a fruitless search prompted Major Hickel, one of the investigators, to question the entire affair, as described in the same book. When all his efforts proved fruitless, the baffled Major began to ask himself whether such a person as, as this invisible criminal really existed. Was it likely that any man, not altogether out of his senses, would choose such a time and place for an assassination? Would come into an inhabited house shortly before the dinner hour when all the inmates would assemble and ring at the door for admission? Was it possible that, seen only for one brief and agonized moment, his appearance could have been so exactly noted even to his shiny boots and lemon kid gloves? Would such a formidable weapon as Casper described have inflicted only so insignificant a wound? And would the murderer, when he saw his victim fall fainting at his feet, have forborne to deal a second more decisive blow? From this point onward, it was deemed that Caspar Hauser should have two guards accompanying him at all times when he left the house. Things continued this way for a year and a half, until, in May of 1831, Professor Dahmer ceased to be his guardian. Far from the innocent he was usually portrayed as being in the popular media, Hauser had a deceptive na nature. At one point, the professor had become aware that his charge was shirking lessons and confronted him about it. When he investigated, it became apparent that it was not just the day in question, but that he had been skipping his lessons all week. The two had a fight, the professor calling Hauser a liar and a cheat before he stormed out of the house. That was on October 17, 1829, the same day as the attack. Once Dahmer had been relieved, Hauser was placed into the care of a Nuremberg merchant and businessman named Bieberbach. Herr Bieberbach quickly soured on Hauser, as had Professor Dahmer before him. He also had noticed a tendency on Hauser's part toward dishonesty, as described by his wife. How many bitter hours, what anguish and annoyance, Hauser caused us by his terrible untruthfulness, no official report has ever made known. After each painful scene of exposure, he used to promise amendment, and was always forgiven and taken back to our hearts as before. But the lying spirit could not be exercised, and Hauser became more and more deceitful. He was prone to dramatics as well. On April 3, 1830, he was confronted about once more skipping his lessons, when he suddenly turned violent, throwing things around and hitting the table, and yelling loudly, Then I would rather not live! Bieberbach was not swayed by this tantrum, however, and told Hauser that he was forbidden from going to dinner at the Burgomaster's home that evening, and told to stay in his room until further notice. He went elsewhere in the house, then the guards at Hauser's room heard a gunshot, 
and ran in to find a bleeding Hauser lying on the floor with a pistol at his side. He claimed that the shooting was accidental, and that reaching up on a shelf to grab a book, he had accidentally knocked a pistol off another shelf and it discharged. But some, Bieberbach included, felt that Hauser had attempted suicide. Shortly after this, the merchant, as well, resigned as Hauser's keeper. The English nobleman Lord Stanhope, or Philip Henry, the fourth Earl Stanhope, was passing through Nuremberg in October of 1829, just after the first supposed attempt on Caspar Hauser's life, when he became aware of this interesting story of a young man who had appeared seemingly from nowhere and whose real identity was undetermined. But it wasn't until 1831 that he finally managed to meet Hauser, which serves to discount the rumors among some that it was Lord Stanhope who caused Hauser's perceived corruption and lying nature, as the instances of un his untruthfulness predated his contact with the English lord. Lord Stanhope was convinced of the tale that Hauser had been kept in a dungeon, and not only that, but that he was a member of some noble house or another. He put into motion a number of efforts to try to determine the family to which Hauser belonged. In 1830, a Catholic priest named Father Mueller said that when he was a tutor in the court of a Countess Matheny in Pressburg, which is German for the city now known as Bratislava, he had been threatened by a Reverend Worth and a governess na named Anna Dalbon, who he claimed were complicit in the imprisonment of Caspar Hauser. Soon after Mueller's tale became known, Countess Matheny and Anna Dalbon were questioned by Hungarian authorities. Both not only denied that the story had ever taken place, but that they had no idea who this priest named Worth even was. It eventually came to light that Father Mueller merely sought revenge against Anna Dalbon who he blamed for his dismissal from the court of Countess Matheny, and that Worth was some other clergyman who, with whom he was acquainted that he also had a dislike for. But the resolution to that story was not yet known when Lord Stanhope arranged for a trip to Hungary to investigate the claims. Hauser had seemed to recognize some words of Hungarian that had been spoken to him, as well as Pizhonia, which is Hungarian for the same city, known as Pressburg. He saw a list of Hungarian names and declared that Istvan was his true name. Countess Matheny he recognized as his mother. When a Hungarian visiting Nuremberg, Ladislaus von Mary, said to him, Istvan goes to Salakis in the language of the region, now Slovakia, from which he was therefore thought to have originated. He excitedly proclaimed, Yes, yes, that's it, that's what I have been searching for so long. Salakis, by the way, being the, count, being the castle of Countess Matheny. But when Stanhope, Baron von Tucker of Nuremberg, and Major Hickel went to, the, went to Pressburg, Caspar Hauser failed to recognize anything or understand any of the language. On the way back, they passed through Vienna, where they stopped at an art gallery. At the gallery, he recognized a portrait of one of the Esterhazy family as someone he had seen at some point in his life. However, Later investigation revealed that the Esterhazy in question had actually died 200 years before. After this fruitless expedition, Caspar Hauser wrote a letter to Lord Stanhope, in which he complained bitterly of his current caretaker, Baron von Tucker, and asked the Englishman to take him in. Around this time, also, the city of Nuremberg decided to stop paying for Hauser's welfare as they had. 
but Lord Stanhope was distrustful of Hauser due to his apparent deceptions in Hungary. So he declined to adopt Hauser formally, but did offer financial aid. In January of 1832, Stanhope arranged for Hauser to go stay with a schoolteacher named Johann Meyer in another Bavarian city, Ansbach. Meyer was apparently less than impressed with the boy. He proved to be stubborn, unwilling to learn, and when he did pay attention, he did so only in fits and spurts. He seemed to have no real ambition, and as all his other guardians had noted, was prone to dishonesty, so prone, in fact, that Meyer claimed that he almost never spoke truthfully. His demeanor seemed mild enough, but when he was alone, he seemed morose and depressed. All in all, I suppose, he was a typical teenager, which I guess we need to remember he was. Meyer got him a job in the Court of Appeal. The president of the court, Paul Johann Anselm von Feuerbach, had taken a great interest in the case since Caspar Hauser first appeared in 1828 writing a book on the case which appeared in 1832. Von Feuerbach died in May of 1833. But anyway, Hauser seemed as dissatisfied with this job as he had with everything else. On December 14, 1833, Caspar Hauser rushed into Meyer's home, out of breath and delirious with a bloody wound in his chest. After hurriedly explaining to Meyer what happened, he collapsed and died three days later. Through conversations with Hauser, who remained fairly lucid even on his deathbed, a picture of what had happened began to present itself. On December 12th, he had been working at the court as normally, when someone dressed as a worker approached Hauser and asked him to come to the Hofgarten, a park in Ansbach. He declined, going to the home of President von Stickoner, the successor to von Feuerbach. The next day, he again went to the home of the president of the courts, and did not see the mysterious individual at all that day. But early on the morning of the 14th, he was again approached by this man dressed as a worker, who once more asked him to go to the Hofgarten, and to the monument dedicated to poet and judge Johann Peter Ouse. Near the monument, he found a man who he said was not the same as the one who approached him at work. The man was tall, had a black mustache and scruffy appearance, and wore a black hat and cloak. The man beckoned to Hauser and produced a silk bag which he gave to him. At the same moment that Hauser took the bag, he felt a dagger plunge into his chest. In the silk bag, which still lay in the garden, there was a note folded in a peculiar manner, one in which, it was said, Caspar Hauser was accustomed to fold notes. When unfolded, it proved to be written backwards. It had been written with the aid of a mirror. The note enclosed within read, To be delivered, Hauser will be able to tell you exactly how I look and whence I come. To save Hauser the trouble, I will tell you myself where I come from. I come from the Bavarian frontier, on the river, I will even give my name as well, M-L-O. The wound proved to be a fairly narrow one on the left side of Hauser's upper chest, but investigations proved more or less fruitless. The two doctors who conducted the post-mortem examination couldn't agree on the source. While Dr. Albert felt that he had been definitely murdered, Dr. Horlocker felt that the angle and location suggested that Hauser had stabbed himself. He likely did not intend suicide, the doctor thought, 
but probably stabbed himself with the intent to wound and simply stabbed too deeply. After all, there were suspicions that the head wound suffered while at Dahmer's and the glancing gunshot wound received at Bieberbox were self-inflicted. Lord Stanhope, for his part, seems to have subscribed to the notion of Hauser's having stabbed himself. As he wrote in his tracts relating to Caspar Hauser, It is probable that an assassin would have killed Caspar Hauser on the spot, instead of allowing him to go home, to give a description of the person, and of his dress, and to have him pursued. If he had murdered Caspar Hauser on the spot, and in an unfrequented place, the assassin thus would thus have gained several hours, which would have been very desirable for his own safety. It is also to be supposed that an assassin would have struck through the heart, and not in an oblique direction, particularly as, according to the opinion of a physician who was asked upon the subject, a wound similar to Caspar Hauser's would not have been mortal if it had been inflicted one rib lower. The place and day appear to have been chosen incautiously, and without reference to the subject, as it was the market day and many persons pass in the neighborhood of the Monument of Ooze when they return home in the evenings. The instrument was, as the wound showed, extraordinarily slight, and it is probable that an assassin would not have used so brittle a weapon, and therefore one so little suited to his object. The conduct of Caspar Hauser appears, at many points, to be very suspicious. Certainly, the manner in which the note was folded, the manner in which it was written backwards, a skill Hauser was said to have, the text of the letter containing a slight grammatical error, substitution of the word den for dem, that the boy often made, and similar paper found in Hauser's room, all seem to suggest that he had, at least, written the note. Investigation by the police at the scene of the crime located the footprints of only one man in the snow, which also seemed to cast doubt on the story. And that is essentially the story of Caspar Hauser, as it's, as it's usually heard. Nearly everything I've ever seen or read alludes to Hauser having been murdered, with no mention of this far more likely scenario. The attempt to tie him to a Hungarian noble family might have petered out and come to nothing, but there was another he was linked to from the earliest days. He had often been linked to the House of Baden, often being said to have been a child of Grand Duke Karl and his wife Stephanie de Beauharnais, cousin of Napoleon. The child in question was born on September 29, 1812, and died just over two weeks later on October 16th. The conspiracy theory held that this prince had been swapped out and a dying infant put in his place. The actual prince was then imprisoned, was released in 1828, and was thereafter known as Caspar Hauser. This theory was debunked by Otto Mittelstadt in 1876, utilizing official documentation about the death. As summarized by Andrew Lang in his Historical Mysteries, the grandmother saw the child born and saw him die. The father was there too, and the nurse. The corpse was examined and opened in the presence of the state minister, Berkheim, and, the, and nine doctors. No one suspected substitution. Shall we believe that everybody was in on the plot, even, including even the grandmother? Mittelstadt's debunking of the theory has been confirmed several times in subsequent years, but the theory continues to crop up again and again. In the years following Hauser's death, 
The conspiracy broadened to include the death of von Feuerbach only months before Hauser himself, the judge being said to have been murdered by poison due to his involvement in the case. Lord Stanhope's character was posthumously besmirched when an author named Elizabeth Evans claimed that he was a part of the Baden plot to deny Caspar Hauser, that he had been used to discredit the boy and even bankrolled his assassination. The Duchess of Cleveland, Stanhope's daughter, later complained that the legal system did not allow for charges of libel against one who was dead. In subsequent years, too, other authors were sued by the son of Johann Meyer, when the schoolteacher was also dragged into the mix as part of Stanhope's plottings. In 1996, a partnership between forensic scientists from Birmingham and the United Kingdom and from the University of Munich ran DNA tests on a few blood spots found on clothing that had supposedly belonged to Caspar Hauser. This DNA testing revealed no relationship to the House of Baden. Other testing performed in 2002 at the University of Munster was performed on samples of blood from other items of clothing and some hair belonging to Caspar Hauser. The six samples tested were identified as all having originated with the same individual, but that differed substantially from the profile in the University of Munich's analysis which, in their estimation, implied that the 1996 study was flawed. Since the House of Baden forbade any testing of the remains of Stephanie de Beauharnais, buried in the Baden crypt at Forsheim, the samples were checked for mitochondrial DNA against that of a known descendant of the Grand Duchess. Essentially, the descendant's mitochondrial DNA should have been identical to Stephanie's, and therefore, if the Grand Duchess was indeed his mother, Caspar Hauser should have been as well. His DNA didn't precisely match that of the descendant, but this didn't exactly say that he wasn't who he was thought to be either, since the deviation was felt to be minor enough that a relationship couldn't necessarily be ruled out. This ignited a media firestorm, with a German publication Der Spiegel denouncing the authenticity of this test, and touting that of the 1996 test. And then there were the matters of the secret rooms. In 1924, a secret room had been discovered at Schloss Pilsach near Neumarkt, and years later new owners found a broken wooden horse in that room. Hauser had claimed that he had wooden horses in his cell. It, of course, was generally assumed that the Pilsach horse was one of these, and that the room was the cell in which Caspar Hauser was kept. And in 2001, another secret room was found at Schloss Beugen in southern Germany on the Swiss border. There was a painting of a red horse on one wall, which was supposedly found to date from the early 1800s. Schloss Beugen had formerly belonged to the House of Baden, and there was also a mass grave of soldiers from the Napoleonic Wars on site. The conspiracy broadened further, with the Childhauser first being kept at Beugen, with the red horse being the source of his love of the collar red, and the mass graves and the stench of death associated with it, being the source of Hauser's ability to detect cemeteries by smell. Anna Dalbon, who had been associated with the attempts to prove his identity in Hungary, now re-entered the story as a governess who had watched over the young child, and who around age four or five had moved him to Schloss Pilsach. This is all a lot of supposition, though, with there being nothing, really, to definitively tie either Boygan or Pilsach to the story of Caspar Hauser. 
except for flimsy supposition like the similarity of a window in the hidden room at Pilzok to the drawing of a plant made by Hauser, or, for that matter, to tie Anna Dalbon to the House of Baden at all. So although it seems likely that Caspar Hauser was merely a troubled young man, and not a prince whose birthright was denied, the mystery around the appearance of this mysterious boy and his eventual death through means just as mysterious, and the romantic tales of just who he really was still circulate. Who do you think Hauser really was? And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. Photos associated with the episode will, as always, be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.